0: All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter 45, or Psalm book 45, however we say that. Psalm 45. I know you have uh, stood quite a bit, but if you would and you have the means, stand one more time and let's just read through the psalm very quickly. The title of this psalm says, Your throne, O God, is forever. This is to the choir master, and it is according to the lilies, which was a tune that they sung it to. This is a maskil which is of course the, um, the series of psalms that we're teaching through. It is a psalm of the sons of Korah, which were some of the Levites who were the musicians and the singers. And it is a love song. So we're gonna, we might get a little romantic in here this morning. This psalmist says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme, and I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in Your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let Your right hand teach You awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, and the peoples fall under You. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of Your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God... Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory places, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of the king are among your ladies of honor, and at your right hand stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people... Your father's house and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, With gifts, the richest people of the world. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king." in place of your fathers shall be your sons. And you will make them princes in all the earth. And I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. You can be seated. I'd like to go to Lord in prayer one more time, if you don't mind. And um, um, G, would you lead us in prayer, please? Ask God to speak to us this morning. Amen. 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 So today we have um, a psalm that is identified to us in two different ways. The first way is as we've been studying, it says it's a masqueal or a masqueal is how I normally pronounce it. But this psalm is a psalm that is meant to instruct or to teach, to impart wisdom in some way. So once again, what we're looking for in this psalm is we want to read it and we want to ask ourselves a question. What can we learn from it? What is it that we are to be instructed in as we read this psalm? So that'll be the goal that we're looking at today. Another purpose for the psalm you'll notice is that it is a love song. It is a song or a psalm that has been written for the purpose of of um, magnifying the king on his wedding day. And so what we see here is the process of a Jewish wedding. And so there's going to be a little confusion that we're going to clear up as we read it. But what you're seeing are the different parts of a Jewish wedding that are taking place as we go through this psalm. And the first thing that we come to is the introduction. And we see that. He says very plainly, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. This psalmist is sitting here and he has been watching this wedding take place. And as he is watching it take place, and he's watching the the pomp and the circumstance around a royal wedding, as he's watching this, his heart literally just bubbles up and and it overflows. It's a, This is a word that's also used when it talks about boiling water, when water reaches a boiling point and it just spills over top. That's the way his heart has become in this. And so he has sit here and watched his king as he gets ready to come and take his bride. And as he sees all of this take place, he describes it because his heart is so overwhelmed he just has to put his hand to pen and just write down all the things that he's feeling, all the things that he is seeing. And so the first thing is that this psalm is about a king. And not just any king, this psalm in its immediate context is a psalm to one of the kings of the lineage of David. And he must have been a great king. Now it's important to understand that he is from the lineage of David because here in a minute you're going to understand that in its future context, it's not just about the immediate king that he sees, but it's about the coming king that they're waiting on. The king that has been prophesied to be The son of David, if you will. But he sees it in this king and he sees some great qualities in his king and he looks both in the immediate and he looks to the future for what he sees in the coming Messiah that has been prophesied as well. Some of the things that he sees and the reason we know why he's a great king, notice what he says in verse 2. You are... The most handsome. In other words, whenever he saw his king coming down the, uh, the aisle, if you will, they're walking down the streets and this king is getting ready to go and take part in the first part of the wedding ceremony. And he's coming down, he looks at him and he says, you are the most beautiful of all that there is in this, uh, in this kingdom. Uh, There is none like you as far as 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 being handsome. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. But not only is He just an outwardly appearing as, as handsome, grace is poured upon your lips. And what does that tell you about Him? In other words, He's the kind of leader and He's the kind of king that when He speaks... It's just graceful speech that comes from me. Now, we ain't seen one of those in the United States in a long time, okay? So we don't know much about this. But it's good to see a leader. And there's another thing we don't know much about. We don't know much about kings and royalty. We don't understand royalty today. In the days to where the royal family was recognized as royal, as the, the top of the ranks in all people, they were viewed in a far different way than we view people today. And they were meant to be because they represented the kingship and the headship of God Almighty. So they were meant to be honored and revered because of what they represented. But we don't get that today, but this psalmist did. And so he's very handsome. He is very gracious in his speech. He's not just gracious in his speech, but if you keep reading in verse 3, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Apparently this king is getting married in his his royal armor. And he is coming out as the mighty warrior. And You remember whenever they would talk about their kings, they would say, Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands. And so... They looked at the king as one that led the way and conquered their enemies and and provided victory for them. And if the king was good, then it meant the people were going to be good as well. If the king was a good king and conquered the enemies, the kingdom was prosperous. And if the king was prosperous, the people were prosperous. And so to have a good king that was a mighty warrior meant everything because it meant all of our enemies would be defeated. And so he's coming down this aisle or down the streets, girding his sword on his thigh and he's a mighty one. And he is in splendor and he is in majesty is the way they describe him. And then in verse 4, in your majesty ride out victoriously. He's a victor. He's not just splendorous and majestic because of the way He looks and the armor He wears. He is a true king that has been a victor. And He rides out victoriously. But He doesn't just conquer everybody for no reason. Look what He rides out for. For the cause of what? Truth. For the cause of meekness. For the cause of righteousness. This is a king that cares about justice. This is a king that cares about truth. Truth. And so this is a good king in so many ways. And he says, let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of your enemies, and the peoples fall under you. He's a great conqueror. And then in verse 6, here's where we begin to see that the psalmist not just looks in the immediate context, but he looks to the future. Because remember, this psalmist is a psalm that, that, he's a psalmist that understood that coming from this line of kings, we're waiting on the true king that runs out in victory for truth and meekness and righteousness. And so, he is a picture of him. And many kings fell short in that in so many ways, right? But there is coming a king that will not fall short in any of this. He will fulfill all of these. And in verse 6, we see the psalmist turns his attention to the coming king. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So in one context, he is talking to this king of David here. But in the other context, he's looking and saying, You represent... God who is coming in the flesh. And that throne will be a throne that will be forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of, um, of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond, that's important, beyond all your companions. So the summary of this is very simple. When I look at this king and when I look at the future king, there is no king like him. There is no one like him for righteousness and truth and meekness and gracious speech and, 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 and beautiful and glory and all of these things that this king represents. There is none like the one that is coming. He is anointed by God beyond all the compa- your companions. And then... He the psalmist describes the smell of this king as he walks by in his armor. And he's going to get married. And this king, he says, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. And those were just herbs that, that had a beautiful smell to them. From ivory places, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of the king are among your... He's just picturing now what he sees. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor, and at your right hand stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. And Ophir was just a place that was known for their purest gold. You can go back to Job chapter 28, somewhere around in there, and see where Job describes the gold that came out of this place. And so basically you have the king and the queen here that are the best of the best and the most beautiful in all the land. Now, it's important to understand that we know that this psalm is ultimately about Jesus. Let me prove to you why. First of all, it is because what they were waiting on was the son of David. The one, the king that will rise up out of the lineage of David, and he would be the king of the Jews. Seventeen times in the New Testament, Jesus is called son of David because they recognized him as this. Let me show you just a few scriptures to prove this. Matthew chapter 15, verse 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. She saw the works that Jesus was doing. She saw the miracles that Jesus did. And when she looked at Him, she knew this is the one we're waiting on. This is the coming Messiah. And when they gave Him the title, Son of David, they were going back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 where it was prophesied that the Son of David would come and His throne would be forever and ever. So every Jew knew this was coming. And they were, every time they looked at a king, they were waiting on the next son of David that just might, just might be the one that we're waiting on. And when he looks at this king, he looks and he sees the beauty and he sees the qualities, but then he looks and he says, But he's not him. But there's coming a king. And he looks forward. Let me show you another scripture, just a few, Matthew chapter 20, verse 30. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. And again, this was just in proclaiming their faith. Their faith was being proclaimed in what they called Him. We believe You are the One that we're waiting on. You are the coming Messiah. And in Matthew chapter 21, verse 15, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that He did, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. They were what? Indignant. You know why they were indignant? Because they recognized that whenever they were were calling Him this title, they were calling Him the Messiah. And they looked at Jesus and they said, We don't believe He's the Messiah. But everyone that called Him Son of David said, We believe You're the coming King. You are the one that has been prophesied that we've been waiting on. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, this psalm is actually quoted by the writer of Hebrews. And notice how he starts it out. But of the Son, he says this. So there again, the New Testament writers understood that when this psalmist wrote this, he's not just looking at the King of Israel in this time, he's looking toward... The son of David. And so of the son, this is what he said in Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. You have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Here's the point. There is no one like the king that is coming. When the psalmist looks at this king coming down the street, try to picture it in your head, the kingdom is lined up on both sides of the street. He has all of his warriors beside of him and his groomsmen, if you will, and they're walking down the street. And he is decked out in his royal armor, probably riding on his white horse more than likely, with a sword on his side in his full armor, And he's riding through the town and he's going to the chapel or to the palace, if you will. And when he gets to the ivory palace, which you read about at the the last verse we read there, the doors open up and from the ivory palace comes these stringed instruments that just make the people glad in celebration for the wedding that's coming. And when the psalmist looks, he looks at the right hand of the king and guess who's standing there? The queen. In the gold of Ophir, the most precious gold. Now, there is no one like this king in beauty, in majesty, in splendor, in victory, in truth, meekness, righteousness, and conquering. He is anointed beyond all his companions. There is no one like him. But then in verse nine, or I'm sorry, in verse 10, the attention turns from the king to the queen. And now he says here, I want to talk to the bride for a minute. Now if you know anything about what marriage represents, and you will before we're done, you know where this is fixing to go because this is speaking to us. But he says, I want to talk to the bride of this king. I've just described him for you. I've just told you everything about this guy. Just look at him is what he says. And then in verse 10, he says, and here we get into some commands for the queen. First off, she needs to do what? You need to hear. Listen to what I'm saying. Just listen to all of the description that we know about him. Listen to the victories that that he has, has gained for us. Listen and pay attention to to his uh, gracious speech and just look at the glory that comes from him. Look at his kingdom. Look at how prosperous everything is. Look at, is there anyone better for you to give your life to? And the answer to that is what? There's none. So he says, Listen, queen, oh daughter, and do what? Consider. Think about him. Think about this king, guys. Think about who Jesus is. Think about what He has done and the victories that He has claimed for you. Think about what happens if you don't have Him as your king. Just consider it. And incline your ear. Bend it down and listen. And here's what you should do. Verse 10 or verse 11. Or the end of verse 10, I'm sorry. Forget your people and your father's house. That's where your dedication used to be. Your dedication and your commitment used to be to this world and to your father's house and to this family. Now your dedication should go to this king. Why? Because there's no one like him. Who can compare to him in in handsomeness, in beauty, in glory, in victory, in, in all of this pomp that this king has to what will you liken Him? And the answer is nothing. And so He says here, forget your people. Forget your father's house and the king will desire your beauty. In other words, bride, here's what you, you should do. When you consider Jesus and you consider this king, you should humble yourself before Him. And you should surrender your life as a living sacrifice to Him because there is nothing better for you to do. And then He goes on in verse Verse 11. Since He is your Lord, bow to Him. Bow to Him. Humble yourself before Him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the riches of people. in Tyre, if you want to read about that, you go to Ezekiel chapter 27 and read the entire chapter of Ezekiel 27. And you'll see why he said the richest of people. There was no richer place than Tyre. And these people were there at this wedding ceremony giving the richest of gifts to seek the queen's favor because they wanted her favor because of who she is married to. And so what we have here is, first off, we have this king, no one like him. Second off, he has chosen a bride and she needs some counsel. And her counsel is, just think about who this king is. Don't take it for granted. Don't take it lightly. This king has chosen you. And because of that, you are to surrender yourself to Him. You are to humble yourself before Him. And you are to be thankful because you are His queen. Now, I want to describe the Jewish marriage to you for just a minute so that you can see the picture here. First off, in the Jewish wedding, you had an engagement. And typically what would happen is that either the two fathers, the father of the groom and the father of the bride, would come together and they would agree on a bride price. And it's important because of what marriage represented. The bride had to be paid for, had to be ransomed. All right. And so they would decide on a bride price and then either the groom or the groom's father would pay the bride's price and they entered into an official contract that they will now be married. That's the first step, the engagement. The second step, we get into the betrothal. And in the betrothal, what you have is there is an official ceremony that takes place. And so what you're reading about in the first part is the engagement has already been made. The king has selected a bride. The bride price has already been paid. Now the king gets ready to go into the betrothal period. And what would happen there is now the king would meet her at the palace or wherever it is that they were going to meet, in the synagogue, the church, or whatever it was, and he would meet in an official ceremony. He's decked out, she's decked out, and they come together and they exchange their vows. And they commit their lives to one another in the sight of God and all the witnesses. And then... Now we are not finished with the marriage ceremony. Now the groom has a responsibility. Now he has to go back to his father's house and he has to prepare a place for his bride. Typically what they would do... The king here has got a palace, so it's a little different. okay? But in the grand scheme of typical Jewish wedding, the groom would go back to his father's house and he would build a room onto his father's house. And then he would wait up to a year, once he has worked enough to build up a living, and once he now has a place prepared, and now that he has proven that he can provide for his wife, that he can provide a place for them to stay, and that he can be a good head of their household, now comes the um, not the betrothal, the wedding feast. The third part is the wedding feast. And so, if you remember, Mary and Joseph were in the betrothal period whenever she became pregnant with Jesus. The marriage had not been consummated yet. All they had done is engaged, met together, and they had exchanged their vows, and Joseph was preparing a place for them. And during this betrothal period, it was up to him to prove that he could be a good provider and a good husband and a good head of the household, and it was up to her to prove that she could be a faithful wife. And that's the reason why when Mary come up pregnant, everybody's going, "Uh uh-oh, she fell short. She has not proven that she can stay faithful. But now we move into what you're fixing to see next in Psalm 45, the wedding feast. About a year later is how long it usually took. We can't imagine that, can you? You said your vows and now it's a year later before you get to consummate. But up to a year later, we have this king or this groom and he's coming down the street and the bride don't know when he's coming, but it's typically at midnight of some night and she has her bridesmaids with her and they're all supposed to be getting ready and they're all supposed to be preparing for the groom to come so that they can all go to the wedding feast, the marriage supper together. And do you remember what Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter twenty-five, verses one through thirteen? Go with that for me for just a minute, if um, if you would. Jesus said, "The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom." Now here's what happened. They are. They're all waiting on the bridegroom. All right. The engagements already took place. The the uh, betrothal has already took place, and they're waiting on the bridegroom to come and say it's time for the wedding. And, so, and an announcement would usually come before the bridegroom that would say, "Here comes the bridegroom," and that would let them know that this is the cry of the bridegroom in its time. So five of these ten virgins were. Foolish. Five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. One of the steps in this was that their ticket to it was they would all march together down the street at midnight and their lamps were basically lamps and their wedding garments were their tickets into, into the marriage supper. You remember the parable Jesus told where He said, there's a man in here that don't have a wedding garment on. How did he get in here? In other words... He don't have his ticket. He's not supposed to be here. And the same way here, if they don't have their lamps and they don't have their oil to go down the streets and join the party and the ceremony with all the family and friends, they don't have their ticket to get in. So five of them were wise and they took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, remember it could be up to a year. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. That's understandable. That's not the sin here, all right? But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And that's what they were supposed to do. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. They were supposed to be ready, but they're not. They weren't watching. They weren't waiting. They 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 didn't keep all in there so that they were ready for him when he came. They didn't have their garments on. And he says the bridegroom came, and those who were what? That's important. Those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But He answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. And then finally, here is the point of the parable. Watch, therefore, because you don't know the day nor the hour when the Son of Man is coming, when the bridegroom is coming. And so that is the typical Jewish wedding: the engagement, the betrothal, after he has prepared a place. And you remember what Jesus said? He said, "I'm going away and I'm going to do what? To prepare you a place. And if I go to prepare a place for you, guess what I'm going to do. I'm going to come back, and I'm... this is the picture that you're seeing. This is the point of marriage. This is the reason why we have marriage. Now today, we get engaged. Have a bachelor party. We say a few vows and that's the end of it. That's not the typical wedding. The typical wedding portrayed, Jesus is coming back to get us. He has pledged Himself to us. We have pledged ourselves to Him. He is our King. He is our groom. And now, one day, He is coming back. And here's the issue. You need to understand... That marriage is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. See me for a man, it's hard for me to consider myself as a bride. All right? I don't like thinking to myself, my my husband is coming to get me one day. I'm not that kind of guy." Just don't it, it, I don't go that way, all right. But the truth of the matter is. Marriage is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. We have to get the physical thinking out of this and look at what it represents spiritually. And to get that, look at Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read very quickly through verse 22 and 32. We're not going to spend a lot of time. I'm just going to read through it. So try to stay with me. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now pay attention to this. Notice he goes back to Genesis and he takes you back to the very first marriage statement. This is where marriage come from. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then look at verse 32. This mystery is profound. In other words, for many years, we didn't really understand the fullness of what marriage represented. But now we do. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The point of it is this. When we look at a marriage like you're looking at in Psalm 45, you are to see it from a spiritual standpoint of Jesus is the king and the groom. The church is the bride and the queen. And she has already said her vows back and forth to each other. Go with me now about back to Psalm 45. Look at verse um, look at verse nine with me, or actually start in verse eight. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from ivory places. Stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor, and at your right hand stands the queen in gold of a fur. Right now we have the uh, betrothal taking place. They're exchanging their vows, but now she's going back. And then notice in verse 13. Now we're getting ready for the wedding feast. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. Remember what you read in Matthew 25? That's what you're seeing. The bridegroom is fixing to come. She's in her chamber. She's waiting, and and her her virgin bride, bridesmaids are with her. And the cry is fixing to come. Here comes the groom. And they all come out with their torches to meet Him at midnight and they get ready to go down the street to the marriage supper, to the wedding feast. And they have their garments on, and they're ready to come in. And notice it says that their robes and their garments are interwoven with gold, many colored robes she's led to her king with her virgin companions following behind her. And with joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the what, the palace of the king to the place that is prepared for her. And so here you see the picture of the marriage. And so what we see here is this. This psalm is about a great king. The greatest of kings. The greatest of, uh, of, of saviors, Jesus Christ. He is a provider, a protector, a great ruler, a victor. He is gracious, He's loving, He's truthful, He's meek, He's kind, and He's rich. And all the riches of the world... Seek your favor as a result of it. And so the question that we have to ask is this, what can we learn from being the spiritual bride of this great king? Well, I got three quick points. I mean very quick. Here's the first point. There is no one better to surrender your life to than this king. Guys, when we come in here and we talk about the love of Jesus and when we come in here and we talk about the sacrifices that he's made and the the enemies that he will defeat and has already defeated and when we talk about the inheritance that he has for us, you're to look at that and you're to believe it, you're to hear it, you're to consider it and you're to understand that there is nothing better in this world for you to surrender your life to. See, that's the main thing the psalmist wanted this queen to understand. Don't just take this for granted that Jesus has chosen you, you, to be with Him forever and ever. Surrender your life to Him as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. And then the second thing, make yourself ready for the bridegroom's cry. Guys, listen. The, um, the arrangement has already been made. The engagement has already been made. The father has already talked to the other father and the the contract has been signed and the bride's price has been paid. Jesus came and He paid the ransom for His bride. That ransom was what? His death on the cross. The wages of sin is death. He paid the bride price. That's the reason why the Apostle Paul said, You are not your own for you have been purchased with a price. And he was talking about there that you belong to Jesus. You are the bride of Christ. And now, he says to us very plainly, there is coming a day when the betrothal period is going to be over. The vows has already been made. Jesus has committed Himself to you and the moment that you confess that Jesus is Lord, you made your commitment to Him and the vows have been made. And now we're in the betrothal period. And now we have the time to make ourselves ready and to prepare ourselves. Let me show you another Scripture in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our our God, the Almighty, He reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has what? That's important. The bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her. Here's how she made herself ready. Y'all pay attention. It was granted her to do what? To clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is what? the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Here is the point of it all. You are in the betrothal period right now. And we're waiting on the midnight cry. That's what the midnight cry means when you hear that. We're waiting on Jesus to step out and for Gabriel to sound the trumpet to say, here comes the groom. And then our responsibility is to have our garments on. And what are the garments? The righteous deeds of the saints. Now it is important for me to help you understand that salvation is by faith alone. It is. But faith is dead without what? Noah believed that God was, going to get a, God was going to destroy the earth with a flood. You know, how, you know how we know Noah believed it? Because genuine faith always follows through. Maggie Lee was one of the last ones I think I married. You know how I know that Maggie knew that she was going to be a bride? Because she started getting her tan on, getting her hair done, (laughs) getting her nails done. She was she wanted the most beautiful dress she could find and the dress is one of the most important parts, right? She had to make sure the tan was just right. She had to make sure the nails were just right. The veil was just right. Everything has to be just right. She wants to be more beautiful on her wedding day than any other day, right? Because she knows she's fixing to get married. You know how you're going to know if you're waiting for the bridegroom to come back to get you? Are you making yourself ready? Do you really believe that He's coming back? Do you really believe that He has gone to prepare a place for you? And do you really believe that one day He will come and take you back to that place that He has prepared for you and y'all will enter and be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb and there is no greater party that is going to be ever be held than this party you're seeing right here. And so here's my invitation to you this morning. First off, have you had your betrothal, your engagement and your betrothal yet? Have you committed your life to Jesus Christ to say, You are my Lord. I am yours. I surrender my life to you and you alone because there's no one like you. Have you considered Jesus enough to do that? If you haven't, here's what the Bible says. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you'll believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Maybe you've done that. But maybe you know that you're not living like you actually believe the wedding's coming. You're not making yourself ready. You're not like this princess in her chambers with your golden wolves. You're not taking the garments that He has provided for you and putting them on. This is why we preach the way we do and we come from every other book in the New Testament and say, put off this and put on this. Put off lying and put on speaking the truth. Take off these clothes and put on these clothes. Because this is how you make yourself ready. You are saved by faith alone. But true faith will always be lived out by you putting on the righteous deeds. You know, it'd been something if Noah had said, God, I believe you. I believe you're going to flood this place, but he never built an ark. What would have happened to Noah and his family? You're going to prove whether or not your faith is genuine or not by whether or not you make yourself ready for the marriage supper that's coming. If that's you this morning and you're not making yourself ready, This is the grace of God instructing you and calling you through this psalm to say, Repent. Repent. And you start coming in here to listen to the Word, to take the clothes that He gives you and put them on when you walk out of this place so that when the bridegroom cries, you'll be ready. You'll be ready. If y'all would stand this morning and...